Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today, the power of theater to bring us together. Two Atlanta productions feature stories of emotionally charged topics with the goal of helping us better understand ourselves and one another. Later in the hour, Roe, a theatrical outfit presents a dramatization of the complex story behind the historic case of Roe v. Wade. First, an audacious satire on stage at Actors Express. You can't come to a play called Booty Candy and expect that it's going to be Gilligan's Island. That's what the award-winning playwright Robert O'Hara said about his show that premiered in 2011. With outrageous humor, the play explores themes of growing up black and queer in America. A new production of Booty Candy is being performed through June 12th at Actors Express. And joining me now via Zoom to talk about the show, art director Martin Damien Wilkins and actor Paris Sarter. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Lois. The title of this play alone brings a smile, if not a laugh out loud. Do we know why Robert O'Hara chose this to be the name of the show? I will say this. I don't know exactly why Robert chose this to be the name of the show, but I have had the wonderful opportunity to meet him on a few occasions. I am not surprised <laughs> that the name of the show is Booty Candy, if that, if that makes sense. <laughs> you think he has a bit of a sense of humor. Indeed, indeed. And I do think that one of the things that Robert does love to do is um, in terms of the very intelligent commentary that you often hear in his work, it does have humor. He doesn't shy away from making very bold uh, statements in terms of, of whether it be the themes that he's writing about, certainly the titles of his plays. He doesn't shy away from going into territories that will make some people uncomfortable, but at the same time, also just, you know, leave you with side-splitting laughter, too, if you just go along on the ride with him. 
Martin, would you give us a synopsis of Booty Candy? Indeed. So the play really follows uh, closely a character named Sutter, who himself is not only Black and queer, but also a playwright. And so you really see him. This isn't so much a coming out story as it is a kind of coming of age story for this young Black uh, queer man who's navigating not only his relationship to his family as he's coming out, but also to his profession as a writer. Uh, So in the midst of that story, you also get um, some very thought-provoking and very funny vignettes. And so you may find yourself inside of a play, inside of a play, and you have to come see the show to understand what I mean by that. Do we know where the similarities start and end with Robert O'Hara's own life? I think that there are definitely some similarities in terms of one theme in the play that recurs is one of family specifically his mother and his grandmother, who, when you read the published version of the play, he actually does dedicate the play to. So it does feel as though it may be steeped in some of his own upbringing. But however, what exactly of the play is specific to his own life is really kind of left up to our imagination, which I actually think is one of the um, really exciting parts of the play, that he does leave room for this to be an experience that, you know, again, as a writer, it, it just may be creative license that he's also taken as well in, in creating the story. Paris, please feel free to comment on this as well. Tell us about Sutter's relationship with his parents. How do they feel about his being flamboyant when he's growing up? I think as any Black mother of that particular time, especially, I think she she's aware of it, but at the same time, she's hoping that he's, he's gonna be straight. She, there is a line that she says, how on earth do you expect to get a woman when you grow up? It's, it's, it's like she, she knows he's gay, but there's a sense of he might, I hate to say I'm like say this, but he might grow out of it. It's just one of those, I see it, but I don't want to see it kind of things that's happening. Um, and also when what happens at the dinner table when Sutter tells her that a man is following him home, instead of asking questions of who is this man and what's going on and why is he following, she asks him, what were you doing? Or you need to stop doing this. It, it, it's a sense of any way she can control it or try to fix the situation instead of really facing the situation. But at the same time, she loves her son dearly and she wants to protect her son dearly. And I think that's why she believes that if he's just be straight or don't do this or don't do that. And I know I've grown up with a lot of my friends who are queer black men who have had their mothers and aunts and grandmothers tell them not to flick their wrists or walk a certain way or or don't listen to that or, or something of that sort. It, it's just a sense of you need to be quote unquote normal, but it's also her coming to terms and also her journey of accepting her son for what he is and who he is and, and that that's all right. Martin, are the portions of the play dealing with Sutter's parents, kind of delicate to direct? 
I think one of the interesting things about this experience, Lois, myself being a, a queer man um, and having had my own experiences growing up, very conservative family, was one, myself having to confront my experiences uh, with exactly what Paris is talking about. Being a child who, from a very young age, I think adults around me identified as possibly being gay, even before I fully understood what that meant for myself. And so, and that way, wanting to correct behavior that they saw as, you know, butching, butching me up a bit, um, I'll put it that way. And as Paris pointed out, certainly there were men in my life that thought, you know, oh, if we just play catch or, you know, sit down and watch the game with me, that that might change me in some way. But also too, I was very interested in the fact that a lot of times it, it was the women in my life as well who were, were trying to quote unquote correct behavior. So in a way to direct the play, I actually sort of had to deal with some of my own personal situations growing up that were quite triggering. An important part of my process is actually sitting down at the table and talking through the play before we even start getting up on our feet. The scene that Paris references at the uh, dinner table is one that on the surface is, is side-splitting laughter. I, at one point I had to turn around, bend over. She was just holding court in a way, <laughs> reminded me of my mother, reminded me of my grandmother, reminded me of my aunts, that it just, I just, I couldn't hold in the laughter. No one in the room could. But as we actually started to unpack the play, because one of the things we were very intentional about was making sure that our company represented the, the people in the play. So it was important to me that we did have people of all I, uh, uh, representations. I identities in the space, uh, specifically for the queer Black men in the room, that, that began to open up their own experiences, which were very similar. And so what we really did have to do was just talk, talk through those experiences as much as they wanted to share of them because they are personal, and actually hold space for that in the room. So that what that then gave us was permission to then say, okay, we know that it's there. We, we will take that time to, to deal with it. If there's ever moments where we do feel it coming up, it is triggering, it is difficult because what we wanna do also too is lean into the very clear comedy that Robert's written. It's fun, it's a funny scene on one level. I think in acknowledging the ways in which it can trigger and maybe cause pain, we can then then heal ourselves through, through, through the laughter that's also there as well. Yes, if you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with director Martin Damien Wilkins and actor Paris Sarter about the play Booty Candy at Actors Express. Paris, you play five different characters in the show. Would you tell us about these characters? <laughs> okay, yes. They're wonderful women. <laughs> All of them are based on some woman I have met in my life or have come across in my life thus far. I think my favorite is middle aged mother because she is based off my mother. She is uh, like Martin says she hold my mother holds court. I grew up watching Cosby show. So it was, she wanted to be the Claire Huxtable. And so she, she does, she sets the table up and she talks about her day and it's hilarious because there was always someone that got on her nerves. It was, it was always, it, so when I read Middle-Aged Mother, I was like, oh, that's my mother, 100%. It was funny. And it, it just, you know, I told my brother about it and we just laughed and had a great time. And then my uh, other favorite is, I think, is uh, Udary. 
Uderi is just audacious and just says exactly what's on her mind. No filter, no anything. And those women are my older grandmother, my aunties who just say it, you know, with and don't bat an eye. And you're just like, (laughs) oh my gosh. And it's the truth. And it's just who they are. And they just tell you the truth and give you a piece of pound cake at the end of the day. (laughs) And genitalia is is uh, young girls that I grew up with or a little bit younger, a little bit older, who are very smart, funny, but at the same time, they might have a little edge to them, which is always fun to play. And I, I love those, those young women because I don't feel like I have enough edge and I, a lot of my friends do. And I just, I just love them because again, they're just honest and they're out there. And, and then Lucy is she just <laughs> she is my great aunt Vaughn. She is her. So yeah, they're they're just the women that I have ran across at church, at home, in everyday passing. So it's just it's just these women who just say their truth. They are out there, they love you to death. And even if they step on your toes, they don't mean to. It's it's just they're just out, they're just bold, bodacious women. And that's what I love about these women. <laughs> Okay, Paris, you very softly glossed over the name of one of your characters. I did. <laughs> Genitalia Lakitha Shalama Abdul. Abdul. Why yes. such an outlandish name for this character? And do they have to go through life? Was that a given name? It was a given name. Genitalia is a given name. And she is proud of it, as in the um, non-commitment scene. She's proud that she's named Genitalia, even though her name is Genitalia. But that speaks on Martin and I, when we were in the room, we talked about the power of names and how it kind of transcends into Adela is taking, in a sense, taking back power because we as Black Americans, we're given these, we have our last names that are mostly colonized. And so the sense of the name genitalia or how we spell our names, it's a sense of taking back, in a way, taking power back and saying, this is my choice. These are my children. Yes, I'm naming my child genitalia. And it's beautiful. And And it's like, girl, what? But if that's the power and ownership of having these children, because down through the years and centuries, we've never had power or ownership of our children or our names. So I just thought, I just think it's hilarious and also powerful that she would name her child such a bold name, genitalia. (laughs) And I think that's the real, that's the real beauty of the play Mm -hmm. is that Robert can take something that, on one level could be discussed in a way that feels very um, political or in a way Mm -hmm. feels very confrontational. And he will just turn it up a notch and make it something that on the surface feels outrageous. But when you actually start to unpack it, you realize this is who we are as Black people. This is what we've done to survive Mm -hmm. in a country that oftentimes has not celebrated who we are. So you realize that, you know, while at the same time you're watching a play that's that may have you sitting there going, girl, what what, what she say the name of that child was? <laughs> Understand that it is part of 
that is part of who we've become as black folks in, in allowing us to thrive in our, our nation. We give our children proud names, whether, you know, whether it, it mirrors, yes. you know, what, what, what people might find is respectable. And I think that's the, you know, again, the power of what this play does. It exactly. says in very outrageous terms, we're going to celebrate the authenticity of who we are to the people who come to see it. And that is so important. I mean, I remember decades ago when Black people were embracing African names, changing names. You know, for many white people, they hadn't stopped to think that received names were slave names. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. so important yes. Yes. to understand that. Yes. One of the interesting scenes in the play is one in which Robert really interrogates what it means to be a Black artist in the American theater. And interestingly enough, how one gets their last name comes up in that scene. Again, it's just, it's interesting the way that these themes are threaded through the play, that on one hand, you might find yourself laughing or feeling uncomfortable, but when you actually start to realize what he's doing in the play, it's it's really an incredible, on one level, it's an incredible commentary, I think, on, on what it means to be Black in America, what it means to be queer in America, what it means to be an artist and to find your voice um, in a country that's oftentimes hostile to you. But one of the things that I appreciate about this play is he doesn't do it in a way that feels like he's embittered, he's empowered. And he empowers us to tell the story because, because of that. Director Martin Damien Wilkins and actor Paris Sarter, we've been talking about Booty Candy, the play on stage now at Actors Express. We'll be back after a short break. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. My guests are director Martin Damien Wilkins and actor Paris Sarter from the production of Booty Candy on stage now at Actors Express. Here, the director explains how the play dismantle certain tropes of black culture represented in media and entertainment. I think in one of the ways that he does it is he really, in that great tradition of satire, he really puts a lot of it in front of us in a a way that 
we have to confront it, whether it be an outrageous stereotype or whether it be the way in which he kind of plays on expectations of what audiences think they're going to see. It allow, I think it gives great permission for us to push the story as, as far as we want it to. You know, it's, it's very clear to me he was a student of George C. Wolfe. I think for a lot of people that see this play, they definitely see the DNA of the Color Museum in this play. That is very, very clear. Robert was championed by George C. Wolfe very early on in his career. And so in a lot of ways, I also think that this play is a, is a, is a love letter to, to the Color Museum and to George C. Wolfe. And the way that he used satire to really comment on what it means to portray blackness in mainstream culture. You know, he just takes it and then he just he just shifts it a little bit. So, you know, for example, you know, one of the things that you see throughout the play is this play premiering in 2011 uh, as a clear love for uh, Michael Jackson. Um, who, of course, passed in 2009. And you see the way in which, and I think this is a thread of, of Robert's own experience, the way that Michael Jackson's life and career, starting off as a young a child in the Jackson 5, up to the Thriller era, we just have these moments where we realize that, that Michael sort of feels like a guardian angel over the play. As players mentioned earlier, I think there's a very clear reference to early Cosby era, what it meant to be Black in, in America at that time, good times, what's happening, those sort of thread through the play as well. So the, the mainstream culture of what it, of, of Black representation at the time, it, it sort of just threads through in a way that, that Robert then just lifts and just gives us that searing satire that allows us again, even in difficult moments, to find moments of laughter as well as, as thought-provoking moments as well. So Booty Candy was very much a product of its moment mm -hmm. in 2011, yes. um, honoring traditions past. How is it relevant today within the Black community? I think one of the ways in which I find it really relevant, one, I think how it still speaks to our experiences of owning our authentic selves in all the ways that we present. You know, one of the things that really struck me, this is my second production of Booty Candy that I've directed. I did a production of it in 2017 here in Charlotte. And I think one of the things that really struck me this time around is really how we look at identity and how we present ourselves as our most authentic to the world. That I think that that's part of what the main character Sutter is really exploring. How does he do that in how he lives his life, but also into how he creates his art. There's a moment in the play, well, there's a few moments in the play where the fourth wall is really broken down between the actors and the audience. And to me, those moments really feel like Robert interrogating what is often asked of Black artists in terms of what they are permitted to, the stories that they are permitted to tell or what the expectation is the kinds of stories that they are permitted to tell that I think we now see in works, whether it be by writers like uh, Michael R. Jackson with A Strange Loop or even Joy Amir Harris with Slave Play, artists who were very much influenced by Booty Candy, Brandy Jacob Jinks is another queer Black writer that comes to mind that I think it's, it's really saying we're, we're not a monolith. We're broader in terms of our experiences. And so how we reflect that back to audiences on the stage, we should have the same permission to do that as our white counterparts do as well. And, and in that way, I think it then requires of the audience to ask, what are we 
asking of Black artists in terms of the stories that we want to see them tell? Are we just keeping them in a box that says it can only be about race or it can only be about you know experiences that relates to slavery or Jim Crow or can it be about a very black queer experience of you know one that feels very now and very very contemporary and really speaks to to what it means to be you know emerging as as a community that's trying to thrive in the the 21st century with, with all the difficulties that clearly we are still facing, um, as, as evident by the crime, by the horror, horrific act that happened in Buffalo, for example. I think that there's a way that we, you know, the way we talk about how we process traumatic experiences that we've gone through in the past, I think that actually, for me, really came to the forefront this time around. This play is, is about a young man who is trying to process a very traumatic experience that he had as a young as a young person. So how does that then help us to love better rather than to to process that trauma and pain and project that onto others? There's a lot of ways I think Robert, even though this play premiered over 10 years ago, was already had his finger on the zeitgeist of where we were headed in terms of how we think about identity and how we think about processing trauma and how not only we survive, but thrive. To that point, at the end of the play, when the moderator asks, what are you hoping the audience comes away with after seeing your work? The main character, Sutter, replies, I think the audience should choke. Would you unpack that? Actually, we just, all of us just were talking about this this morning, the actors, because there's another great line that Sutter also says. It's like, reminder that all chocolate cake ain't the same. It, it, It means that however you experience this play is your experience. And if you get it, then you get it. And if you don't, that's all right. And we will not contort. And, and it's, it, it is what it is. And it's wonderfully Black. And it's bold. And it's unapologetic. And I hope you marinate it. Uh, marinate. Let it linger there. Don't just walk away from it. Don't gloss over the comedy. Think about what you really watched. Experience. This, is, this play is really an experience. This is this is a three course, five course meal, in my opinion, type of a play. So you don't, you just, you can't hide from it. We just, we are, we come out, come, we come out banging and we, we want you on your edge of your seat, or we want you to feel red and leave going, I can't believe I just, I was red, or I can't believe they just did that. I can't believe they just said that. Or I, I you know, it's just one of those, it's just the, the themes and what's happening and the blackness and the unapologeticness of everything that Robert puts in this play is, is wonderful. And we do want you to choke, actually, but we want you to choke and learn and experience and talk about it days and weeks and months later. Exactly. There's a moment where the character says that, you know, when you choke on something, it lingers there. Yes. And I think that Robert's really telling the audience, like, whatever uncomfortability that you have, like, there's actually something that can be taken away in even the memory of having experienced it and the memory of having experienced it with an audience. And I think that's the thing that to me, that's to me is what the experience of booty candy, I want audiences to take away. That, that it's like whatever you you experienced of the play, if it's not just simply you you take the program home, 
leave it on the coffee table and you never think about it again. If it's still on your mind, you're still processing it later, that's a good thing. I think there's a moment in the play where even Robert as playwright acknowledges the process of writing and creating work is messy. And we can actually, even as artists creating the work, we can, we can be in the mess, like it's okay. What I love about Robert's work is he's okay with not tying it up in a nice little bow just for the sake of doing that. If he gives you that uncomfortability and then at the end also says, but also have a little dance to Michael Jackson as well. Right, you know? the breathing moment. That's okay. Moment. Yeah, that's yes. okay too. That's okay. That's okay too. And is that why the humor in this play is helping to deliver its serious intentions? I think so. I think yes. so. <laughs> yes, clearly we I think that. so. It's like, right, it's like it's putting it in the applesauce, it's mm-hmm. taking the medicine so you can take the medicine well. Yeah. Comedy is very important. Director Martin Damien Wilkins and actor Paris Sarter. Booty Candy is on stage at Actors Express through June 12th. More information is on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, we hear about the story behind the emotionally charged issue of Roe v. Wade at Horizon Theater. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Earlier this month, there was a leak of a draft majority opinion from the Supreme Court that would overturn Roe v. Wade, the landmark decision in 1973 that led to legalized abortion in America. The personal journeys of the women involved in that historic case are at the heart of Horizon Theater's new production, Roe. Joining me now via Zoom to talk about the play, director Lisa Adler with actors Jennifer Alice Acker and Rin McLemore. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. So thrilled to be here. So happy to be here, Lois. The timing of this production could not be more appropriate. Lisa, when did you plan to present this play? Well, it was originally scheduled during COVID. It was supposed to be in fall 2020. So when we had to cancel that show, we weren't sure when we would bring it back. And then when we were deciding what our season, our return season would be, we first thought, well, I don't know if I want to do something as divisive as Roe. And then Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed. And then we decided that Roe was probably going to be up for review in May, June. We have a board member, Lynn Siegel, whose husband's Eric Siegel has written a book about the Supreme Court. And he's kind of our inside track on what happens. And Eric told us that by the end of June, that there would probably be a decision on whether Roe would be overturned. So or not. So we decided that May, June was the time that we should do the show, um, since that's a time where it would be in the public eye 
as the Supreme Court debates, but we certainly did not think there would be a leak. We just knew that it would be up for a decision during this time period. Many people are familiar with the Roe versus Wade decision, but where in the timeline of that decision does this story take place? It takes place over 20 years. So it starts in 1969 and 1970, right before Sarah and Norma meet when Norma McCorby, who's Jane Roe, is pregnant. And then it takes place over 20 years. It goes to about 1995. And then there's also a, a piece at the beginning and end that is today. And the conceit of the show is that Sarah and Norma, at the end of their lives, are looking back and telling their stories to you. So they come out and they tell competing stories about this is what the story of Roe is. And Jane Roe, Norma Corby tells hers. And Sarah Weddington, the lawyer who argued the case at the Supreme Court, tells hers. That's the story of the play, basically. Rin, you play the role of Norma McCorvey, also known as Jane Rowe. How much of her life story did you know before taking this part? Oh, man, Lois, it, um, really not much at all. In fact, I was one of the, I think, many people who did not know that Norma McCorvey did not, in fact, have an abortion. I think a lot of people historically just assume that because she's Jane Roe at the heart of this, you know, historic case dealing with abortion, that she had an abortion. She did not. I mean, that's how little <laughs> I knew about her before tackling this play. And her story is, is such a heartbreaking, complex one. And I'm so excited to be to be telling it alongside this phenomenal cast of actors. In addition to all that's been written, there have been several movies and documentaries about this decision. How did you prepare for the role of Norma? Well, I, I did a ton of reading. There's a wonderful documentary on Hulu right now called AKA Jane Rowe that is so wildly informative and really spans the life of Norma McCorvey. There's an amazing book that has just come out called The Family Row that does a deep, deep dive into Norma's family history. And that, that book actually has been the most helpful for me in terms of understanding her complex emotional journey and the myriad traumas that she went through from a very young age. And she really is a heartbreaking human being in that the thing I realized as I was doing research is that this poor woman just wanted to be seen by people and validated by people. She comes from a very broken home, a very tumultuous relationship with her mother. And the big challenge for me with this role was why the heck did she flip-flop? Why did she go from being so adamantly pro-choice to pro-life? And that's the big arc and journey that I have in this play. And it's a big old arc, let me tell you. And, and I would try to get underneath it and figure it out. And the thing I kept landing on when you watch her in this documentary and when you read about her, it seems like she went wherever the attention was you know, and which is really heartbreaking. Something also very interesting is that, and this is not in our play because the play was published before this happened, but in the documentary, it is revealed that on her deathbed, it's her deathbed confession 
that she says, I was never really pro-life. I was paid a bunch of money by the pro-lifers to flip-flop. She really was manipulated throughout her life and in terms of the specific journey. And that deathbed confession is fascinating to me. And again, that's not, not in our, in our play, in our story. I wish it was <laughs> because I think it's such a fascinating turn of events, but it's just another testament to how manipulated and pushed and pulled this woman was just to be clear. I, I do not think she was a victim through all of it because she herself was a complicated woman, but yeah, I, I think that deathbed confession specifically is just absolutely fascinating and heartbreaking. Mm. Jennifer, you portray Sarah Weddington, the lawyer who represented Norma and successfully argued Roe v. Wade in 1973. She was only 26 years old going before the Supreme Court. That is mind-boggling. What else can you tell us about Sarah Weddington? Absolutely one of the sharpest thinkers I've ever encountered. A lot of my research has been reading her book, A Question of Choice, which the clarity and conciseness of thought, but with the emotional nature of it, the human nature, the way she communicates and relates to people, watching her in, in video interviews as well, she has a sparkle in her eye that makes you feel like you're the only person in the room. Um, she really hears and sees you. So she was almost this uniquely poised figure. I wonder if she's the only woman in America who could have done it at that time. She just had this perfect symbiosis of beauty, charm, intellect, almost this, if you're a Star Trek fan, like this Vulcan level of thought. <laughs> <laughs> she was really exceptional. I believe she also did the case pro bono because no one would hire her as a woman. She was trying to get a, a law firm job and could not book it. We discussed that in the play a little bit. So truly an exceptional figure. And she was an advocate for her entire life. She was an advocate for women's rights before this case. That's how she found herself in the Supreme Court in 1972 and 1973. And she was an advocate her entire life after that. Abortion rights, uh, she was an advisor to President Carter on women's issues. She was the president board for NARAL. She later became a, a cancer survivor and she spoke on breast cancer regularly. So her entire life was just defined by fighting for the rights of women. Mm. Sarah and her colleague, Linda Coffey, filed the case together in district court in Texas using Norma McCorvey as their test case plaintiff. How would you describe their relationship with Norma? Oh, what a good question. And Rin and I, we, I think we get too nerdy about this every night. You know, any, any pause in the scene work when Lisa's working with someone else, we just kind of go offline. You're like, okay, so what about this? I think Sarah. So what I would define it as, at least through the context of the play, is a series of missed connections attempting to connect, believing they are on the same page, but their completely disparate life experiences affect their understanding of one another. So, you know, Sarah thinks she is being totally transparent and on the same page with Norma, but her, her education, her privilege, her background, her, her intellect, frankly, phrases things in ways that perhaps Norma can't understand. And I think Sarah doesn't understand that. And so it's this kind of, Ren used the word heartbreaking, and I think that's true. 
it's a heartbreaking, beautiful, complicated relationship between two women trying to be on the same page and failing and trying again and failing. And even when they become arch nemeses over the course of the play at one point, because like Lisa said earlier in this call, their stories begin to war, right? We're, we're trying to seek the truth the entire show. And yet we have two different truths happening on parallel tracks. And even at the moment where we couldn't see less eye to eye, there is this beautiful moment of tenderness that Ren and I and Lisa have crafted in the show. I think it is so exemplary of the women's issues and the women's struggle and that we are all on the same side, even though we don't always see eye to eye. It's the relationship of daughters and mothers and sisters. It's complicated and powerful and heartbreaking at moments. Rin mentioned Norma McCorvey never had an abortion before the decision was passed by the Supreme Court in 1973. How much of Norma's life is revealed after the Supreme Court decision in this play? A whole lot. <laughs> there's there's a wonderful moment in the play towards the end of Act One where Sarah goes, and that was the case. And now moving on, and Norma interrupts her and says, whoa, 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 maybe that's the end of your story, but I'm just getting started. And then from there, we watch Norma's rise to fame. <laughs> really. She goes off with Gloria Allred to Los Angeles and is, to quote Norma, paraded around the country, appearing in interviews. She's groomed within an inch of her life to, to give speeches and make appearances as a pro-choice advocate. And she walks that path for about 10 years. She's working in abortion clinics with her, her partner, Connie. And then meanwhile, the big twist, and this was like when I found this out as part of the, her story, I thought, good Lord, wow. Operation Rescue, which was a very pro-life organization, moved in next door and rent-free, I might add, next door to the abortion clinic where Norma worked, which as you can imagine, creates much tension and mayhem. <laughs> and that's the beginning of the planting of seeds of Norma starting to creep into pro-life territory because the leader of Operation Rescue, Flip Benham, who I believe he's still working for Operation Rescue. I think he started uh, other pro-life movements, but he currently exists. He lives in North Carolina. His sons also are, are very active in the pro-life movement. But there's a beautiful scene in Act Two where they have an interaction after many, many not pleasant interactions, I guess is a nice way to put it, where he basically gives his testimony of, of how he came to be a part of the pro-life movement. And that's when you see Norma, there are other seeds planted prior to that scene, but that's the scene where you really see her take the sharp left turn of, wait a second, maybe, maybe I'm not so pro-choice. And it's really fascinating. And again, as an actor, I mean, this is the stuff we live for, right? These juicy, immensely complicated arcs. And I think of, throughout my entire career, I can safely say this is, the, this is the biggest challenge I've ever faced as an actor in terms of really justifying that that arc but yeah we we see we hear a lot of norma's story especially into the second act of the play and we watch how she goes from her her over a decade of being passionately pro-choice to stepping into the path of pro-life 
If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights, is speaking with director Lisa Adler and actors Jennifer Alice Acker and Rin McLemore about Horizon Theater's production of Row. One of the things that I really love about this play, it is not a play about pro-choice, right? It, it really beautifully depicts both sides of this obviously wildly controversial topic. And I think one of the things that, you know, Lisa has really nailed in her direction and that the actors are doing so beautifully in our production is you see you see very clearly why both sides believe what they believe, which I believe is the path to ultimate communication and, and hopefully healing and coming to some sort of conclusion is being able to have deep empathy for the each side's truth. And I think that's something that this play does really beautifully. I read that that was of utmost concern to the playwright that she wanted this to be a very compelling argument. She wanted to present a compelling argument of each side. How do you think this story confronts both sides of the abortion debate? Well, I think there's no question that Lisa Loomer has a political opinion, and I, I think that is expressed in the play. However, she really does her best to make us feel the humans behind both sides of the stories. I was told by one of our people attending that we had some pro-life audience members the other night and they left feeling like they their side had been heard. Mm. Um, so I think that that's a, that was a very positive thing for me because we hope that people at least feel like they are fairly represented even though the playwright does have a feeling about what her opinion about the subject matter of pro-life, pro-choices. I'm interested about the use of the term pro-life as it's used in the play. I know people who oppose abortion embrace the term pro-life. There are many people who are in favor of legalized abortion who don't think of themselves as murderers. In the play, does Lisa Loomer use the term pro-life or anti-abortionist? Pro-life is used the majority of the time. There right. is one example of anti-choice, and it's in The Second Pregnant Woman. Uh, you know, this, this is a question that sits with me at probably every rehearsal, Lois. I think about this, especially as Sarah Weddington, where her book is titled A Question of Choice. And, you know, at one point I say, we are not here to advocate abortion. We do not ask this court to rule that abortion is good or desirable in any particular situation. You know, we are asking who gets to decide. So it is really interesting to me that Lisa Loomer, the playwright, has not used anti-choice more. And I think it circles back to the conversation we just had about pro-life voices being heard from their perspective, ah. not from our perspective. I will say I am and always have been pro-choice. And I have never understood the other side of the argument with more compassion than I have after doing this show. And I have never been more firmly planted in pro-choice than I have after the show. And both those things are true and they stand next to one another. And that is what I think is exceptional about the play, about Lisa's direction, about Lauren's dramaturgy and about the ensemble's work. Mm. 
Lauren Morris does community engagement for Horizon Theater. Horizon is holding community conversations after four of the matinees. Lauren, can you tell us about the topics of these discussions? We have had several of these already. Uh, we do have these accessible on our website. We're going to record all of the community conversations so that audience members who see the play throughout the run can benefit from these experts talking on these topics. One of the things that we wanted to be intentional about was making sure that our conversations weren't about is this right or wrong or taking a, a side you know, pro-choice, anti-abortion, like what we focused on instead is what are the public health issues surrounding this? And we are so fortunate here in Atlanta to have uh, not only the CDC, but the Rollins School of Public Health, which has just a wealth of really brilliant experts who are doing work in this field. And so we do have one panel that is focused on what are choices? So when we talk about choice, what does that even mean for somebody who is facing an unintended pregnancy? What are their choices? And we have several experts who are going to speak to that. And then we have another panel of experts that will just focus on maternal health and maternal health outcomes, because it is risky to be pregnant and to go through childbirth. And those things are not without risk to the person who is going through that. And so we just have some doctors, public health experts speaking to those circumstances. And then we have other individual conversations throughout the run also with experts. And I, I think there's just so much perspective to gain for those of us who are aware of the political conversation, but aren't looking at, at it from a, a public health question, which on some level it definitely is. And also we have one that will be recorded online with a legal professor, uh, Eric Siegel, who has written a book about the Supreme Court and he's so informative and we'll be talking about what does a post-world world look like from a legal perspective and uh, what his, he's uh, written quite a bit about it. He was interviewed as soon as the leak happened. He's been interviewed all over the country and he's going to share his thoughts with us. Does he teach in the law school at Georgia State? He does. Lisa, why was it important to you to tell this story at Horizon? Horizon has always done plays that present the perspective of women. And it was important to me because I, I believe it's a history lesson that people that lived through that generation might know, but people that didn't don't know. They don't know what was sacrificed. They don't know what it was like before. It is an incredible story, but also an incredible history lesson. And I thought this is the right time for that to be shared uh, with people in our audience, people outside of our audience. And we also wanted to use it as a convening place to talk about this issue for the community at the time we knew it was going to be in the public eye. So our hope is that um, we are helping to raise this issue up and, and spark conversation about it at a time where it is important. Director Lisa Adler with actors Jennifer Alice Acker and Rin McLemore. Roe 
is on stage at Horizon Theater through June 12th. More information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we remember those who lost their lives in the Orly plane crash 60 years ago. Award-winning journalist Ricky Bevington joins us to talk about the impact of the tragedy on Atlanta as well as her family. Her grandmother and great-grandmother were among the large Atlanta arts delegation all killed in the crash. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.